Actually, it's called Little Black Book. Welcome to Extended Clip, episode 48. I'm one of your hosts, Eddie Averill. I'm Malcolm Vaughn. I'm JT White. And our double feature this week is Black Book by Paul Verhoeven, the 2006 film, and Little Black Book by Nick Haran, the 2004 film. Um, JT, you brought this double feature to us. Why don't you uh, tell us a little bit about your selection here? I feel like a good bit of this podcast is dedicated to us uh, exposing the uh, global pedophile elite, or we've certainly <laughs> talked about it uh, enough uh, times. Yeah, and I was just thinking of uh, a lot of people, Bill Clinton, Donald Trump, Tony Blair, Chuck Schumer, John Kerry, Steve Bannon, Kevin Spacey, uh, Woody Allen, Joan Rivers, David Blaine, <laughs> Jimmy Buffett, Mick Jagger, Charlie Rose, Barbara Walters, Alan Dershowitz, Edward Kennedy. <laughs> this, is, this, is, this is slander. This is libel. Um, all names that were in uh, Jeffrey Epstein's famous black book. So I figured we would shine a light on two different kinds of black books, but both revealing uh, secrets uh, from the names that they hold within. Yeah, you know, this double feature taught me that like black books, black books can be more than one thing. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think there are some connections, though, in the first film that you can draw to Epstein's black book in terms of the book ending segments of the film taking place in uh, 1950s Israel and the very likely possibility that Jeffrey Epstein uh, was an employee of uh, the Mossad. <laughs> Actually, it was that year when the movie ended when Jeffrey Epstein was being conceived <laughs> by <laughs> the both, both top elite Mossad agents forced to mate to create Epstein. So JT, what is Black Book to get us started on this film on the whole? Um, yeah, well, I was always curious about, uh, watching Black Book because, uh, Paul Verhoeven, as we have been mentioning, is a god and the king among directors and is so good, but I was only really exposed to his American work and Black Book is his return to the Netherlands, um, after I, the fourth man was his last flick there. It's a World War II drama following uh rachel as she is sort of like hiding from the nazis and then ultimately gets tied up in a resistance plot um to sleep with a nazi officer it's also his reunion with a screenwriter that he worked with back then uh gerard uh jotaman i don't know how to pronounce that guy's name but uh they wrote uh, the film soldier of orange which was one of his big early films and turk's fruit which Paul Verhoeven fans, if you have not seen Turkish Delight, a.k.a. Turk's Fruit, definitely go seek that out. Uh, a big precursor to the zipper gag in There's Something About Mary oh. and just like a lot of the great uh, sex humor uh, that American sex comedies were never quite able to achieve. It's really one of the greats. Yeah, I mean, I, I think Verhoeven was actually one of the first um, filmmakers I started getting into. And like stuff like Basic Instinct and Showgirls, you know, they are uh, real enticing, exciting movies to me. And I, I don't think I've really checked out his non-American work or his like his work probably since uh, his 2016 movie, Elle, which I thought was really good. But I haven't 
I haven't really revisited them in a while, you know, come to think of it. And so coming into this movie, I mean, you think, you know, it's a World War II drama, you know, you, you think there's going to be a certain air of respectability. And then I was like, oh, yeah, it's a Paul Verhoeven movie. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I got a big smile on my face. <laughs> It's so fucking cool that this is literally the most expensive Dutch film of all time to that point <laughs> and the highest grossing Dutch film of all time to that point. And this is a film where the lead actress gets a bucket of shit dumped on her and there's like insane, like de- just absolute depravity throughout the whole thing. And I think obviously, you know, Verhoeven's goal in that is to show just how uh morally depraved uh you know fascism is without just the militaristic everything in perfect order uh display that every other movie that shows fascism uh leans toward you know this is much more a bacchanal of sex and booze and like fucking up Mm -hmm. yeah i like that also aside from just the nazis uh, opposed to like i feel like the very contemporary or maybe more of a like early 2000s thing about doing World War II dramas is that they paint the resistance as just like, oh, they're fighting against the Nazis, so they're the good ones. I like the sh- yeah. the nuance that uh, Verhoeven does in Black Book by showing like a lot of their anti-Semitism and just like how it's like, I don't know, he makes, he grays up and mucks up everything is down there in the dirt and it is such a fun time. Oh yeah, the the anti-Nazi factions like they there are people that are working uh, hand in hand, but are so ready to betray each other because of their allegiances. You know, there's anti-communists, there's anti-Jew uh, factions in there, and like who think you know the <laughs> I guess those people think the Nazis are right about one thing. They just think their <laughs> approach to economic socialism is very wrong. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's like a very obviously morally gray film. Uh, Even the protagonist makes a lot of decisions that I think a lot of American audiences would get very upset with. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, we've pointed out kind of like how this exposes, you know, maybe some of the resistance factions being flawed. But also notably, um, Rachel does fall in love with Muntz, who is a Nazi officer and is, you know, there's some... uh, you know, if you're if you got a dunce cap on, you know, you might say like, oh, there's some Nazi sympathy in this movie. But, you know, like JT said, you know, he's just graying everything up. You know, there's no uh, easy answers given in this movie. And it's it's uh, it's it's quite a whirlwind. It's you know, it's kind of caught me by surprise. Yeah, no, in terms of like the love aspect of it and the, you know, buying into the romance of a Jew and a Nazi, this is the inverse of Jojo Rabbit. This is the <laughs> much more, much more historically astute, much more uh, morally unforgiving, much more irony poisoned, uh, much more just cynical version of Jojo Rabbit in that regard, which of course means that it's the much, much, much better film. Uh, and of course, on any like formal capacity of filmmaking, Verhoeven just blows YTT out of the water. Um, but yeah, I think the his ability as a filmmaker shines so bright here because there is kind of nobody to you know quote unquote root for in the traditional sense. Uh, the movie's following a survivor who then falls in love with a Nazi, as you said, you mm-hmm. know, and it's then then the last hour is about. Uh, 
her and the Nazi trying to get out of post-war Europe uh, unscathed, you know? Yeah, yeah. And I, I like, you know, what you're saying about it being irony poison, one small moment that I liked where, you know, kind of set the table for what I think I was getting into is when um, Rachel meets up with the resistance group after, I guess, her family is killed, not to get ahead of ourselves. And uh, she explains her former work experience as being like a kosher food chef. And then one of the resistance guys like, yeah, there's not much of a market for that anymore. And then he's just like, like, oh, wait, I'm I'm sorry. Wait, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, yeah, on that boat ride, they, of course, get mowed down. It's a it's a really impactful scene, honestly. Like mm-hmm. it shows that Verhoeven has the chops to like impact a movie, go- a regular movie going audience. You know, like all the people that f- I don't want to say fell for Starship Troopers or RoboCop because obviously they're great movies, mm-hmm. but fell for the ironic logic of those movies. You know, yeah. Um, that like obviously he can captivate an audience in showing a group of. Uh, Jews trying to escape Nazi-occupied Holland and getting held up by uh, by a German boat, and you know everyone gets shot by machine gunners. And then we learn that this is a long-term scheme uh, propagated by one of the German officers. That's a main character in this film, one of these big fat bozos named Franken, who stops shaving halfway through the film as the war effort is getting worse and worse for the Nazis. <laughs> uh, and yeah, he's like finding the richest Jews to offer escape routes to and then getting them all killed and uh, looting all of the jewels and money that they brought along. Yeah. And Franken, who, uh, you know, was actually, you know, orchestrated the killing of Rachel's parents. Once uh, Rachel starts that relationship um, with the Nazi, you know, as a spy, uh, we see Franken, you know, in these, you know, lounges you know, singing and dancing, and it's some of the most grotesque shit, like, I've experienced. I mean, even before the depravity begins, like, it's just, um, I mean, Rachel throws up when he first sees, when she first sees Franken, and... Oh, that flashback is amazing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, not to just keep comparing it to lesser American films, but it's just like the famous cream scene from Inglorious Bastards, uh, when Shoshana like is offered the cream for her pastry by Christoph Waltz, who obviously in the opening sequence of that film, uh, she witnessed his you know terror. And this is just like that, except it's much uh, less subtle. It keeps cutting to the flashback in a really aggressive fashion, and it really is uh, effective in that way in like getting to the true horror and then how much it takes for her to suppress that to go through with this espionage work that she's gotten uh, out of these, you know, this group of communists and Dutch nationalists that are anti-Nazi. Mm-hmm. And how, how she has to suppress those emotions, I think is very interesting and in how those emotions kind of uh, show up in a different way, you know, for her, her having to live like this, you know, seductress spy lifestyle where, you know, eventually she falls for the Nazis kind of like, you know, it shows that it's a product of her difficult situation, you know, so it it, it does, this movie does give a, a good amount of sympathy towards Rachel. I mean, like you said, we do see a bucket of shit thrown on her, so uh, <laughs> it's kind of hard not to feel bad for her uh, at that scene. Yeah. Also, uh, I wouldn't feel bad about, you know, just comparing this to other movies, because I read Rosenbaum review for this, and he just compared it to Schindler's List, which is like, yeah, <laughs> love Rosenbaum, but it's like, of course it's not Schindler's List. 
<laughs> no, but didn't Rosenbaum Rosenbaum placed it at his number one of the year for like film comment or something like that for 2006. Oh, really? I, I didn't I didn't peep the list, but that's that's sick. Uh, this movie deserves yeah. props. Oh, yeah. Uh, this seems to be pretty underrated in the Verhoeven canon, even just like going on Letterboxd. It seems like people don't really care about this one all that much. Um, but I think this is a really interesting film. I mean, the middle hour of it is basically her with this resistance group, uh, you know, infiltrating the Nazi base, getting a job there directly under the officer that she's falling in love with, and her going back and forth between the Nazis and the anti-fascist aggressors, you know, and yeah, and so we see them carry out a bunch of like minor tasks, like uh, kill this one officer where a guy like the guy who's like too scared to pull the trigger and then he calls, uh, he calls her a bitch. Uh, and then the guy pulls the trigger because of his cursing. That's a good Christian man right there. That's, that's someone. With, oh yeah. That's someone with values. You don't really see people like that anymore. So. I like that it sort of serves like foreshadowing like later when Rachel has to make like a decision to kill someone where she uh, like screws that guy into that coffin. It's like, I don't know, there is a real um, coming to terms to the violence that they have to stoop to to defeat the Nazis that it's just like arguably at points I mean like not the scale isn't the same but it's just as brutal and I like that the characters really have to wrestle with that no yeah I think yeah this is what kind of separates this movie from maybe some of his collaborations he did with you know Joe Esterhouse who's like you know a very sensational screenwriter where like yeah they kind of have to come with to moral terms with all, everything that happens to them you know so and it's it's all really felt, you know. Whereas the, in some of like something like Showgirls, you can have a bit of a detachment from the situation. But uh, you know, as as much you know as some absurd things happen in this movie, it's it's all still very emotionally felt. Yeah, no the the moral reckoning is like immediate. You know, the scene where he kills that guy, the officer who falls into the water after, uh, immediately right after that, we get another guy in the resistance group in their bunker uh, puts on a little fake Hitler mustache and is like doing a bit pretending to be Hitler and everyone's cracking up. And then the guy who just uh, committed murder for the first time just looks absolutely dead and just like walks in front of him uh, in front, like to kind of break the staging of the scene. Like it's very strangely staged walks in front of him and just starts like kind of monologuing about the horrors of murder and how God will never forgive him. And then another guy comes in uh, to change the course of their meeting and, you know, for their next objective or whatever. And it's like, yeah, there's no time for these very obviously important moral reckoning that these characters have to do. Uh, there's just no time for it in situations like this. Yeah. And that speaks to kind of like the quasi relationship that forms before she uh, bunks up with the Nazi between one of uh, the resistance fighters. I think his name is Hans 
and uh, he, he he takes pride in having sex with her first. He you know the Ray J Ray Ray J ideology. I hit it first. <laughs> <laughs> Only problem is he's an officer. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but even before that, we get a classic Verhoeven scene. Uh, like I love which parts of the process he's very detailed about. You mm-hmm. know, like we see a gun shipment that goes awry and a few people get caught. We don't see anything leading up to that gun shipment really. Like we don't really know what's happening. We just know something's going wrong. But then with her first, uh, you know, night with these officers, we even get the details of her bleaching her pubic hair to pass <laughs> as uh, to pass as a natural blonde, even though her disguise is blown immediately when uh, the officer looks at her, the roots of her hair. I love the scene of her bleaching her pussy. That is so great. Cause it's just like a little, like I think with Paul Verhoeven being down in the dirt, it really captures a sense of realism for like handling this. Like it's less, I mean, it's definitely big and ironic, but like there's a truth to just how brutal and aggressive the world is. And just like, even not the bleaching her pussy is aggressive, but it's just like, it's dirty (laughs) and just like out there. And it's just no other, like a few other directors would include that detail. Mm Mm-hmm. There's even uh, the the scene right after that where she eventually does get caught uh, by the officer that she's been sleeping with. He does like a gag where he pretends to have a boner, but it's actually a gun, which is an inverse (laughs) of uh, something that uh, one of the resistance guys uh, says to her early on when they're on the train together. Damn, I didn't catch that, but you're right. Fuck. Um, I actually didn't even put that together until I said it. (laughs) Really? Damn. That's that's real. Sometimes you got to think about the movies as you go, you know? <laughs> that's real-time criticism. You're improving. <laughs> uh but yeah, I really love all the stuff that is at her job. You know, like she has a coworker, another woman who is uh, you know, another Dutch woman who's sleeping with a Nazi officer, so she's allowed to just work and you know, when she's at the the last party they have uh, before all the shit goes down, there's a shot of like a guy pouring champagne all over her and another, <laughs> another guy like spreading her legs open. And she's like spitting the champagne up in the air like a fountain. <laughs> it's just like the most absurd like caricature of just like gross behavior and just absolute depravity uh, just as everything's about to completely go to shit for all of them. Except for her. She comes out scot-free. She gets a French-Canadian boyfriend at the end, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. That depravity reminds me of kind of like um, Welcome to New York's kind of like party scenes. I think that's a a good analog. Oh, yeah. And um, I mean, just also another striking scene to me is uh, when, you know, she's talking to her co-worker, another, you know, the the other Dutch woman who's uh, fucking Franken. And, you know, she... You know, just walking in on her pissing, you know, we get some casual piss convos and, you know, um, detailing, you know, what the job is to her. And then you see Franken come in and he's fucking naked. And like, this is the guy. Oh, yeah. You get to see his tiny (laughs) cock. And this is the guy who ordered like the murder of her entire family. And like, it's, and it's just, it's so, it's so like disheartening. And uh, I mean, her tits are almost squeezed by him too. I mean, thankfully, thankfully Verhoeven has a little bit of, you know mercy in his heart but uh that yeah that bathroom scene where i was just like oh god after the war ends uh she's escaping with her officer boyfriend now and is completely 
abandoned her resistance, uh, you know, co-fighters. And uh, yeah, they seem to be getting away. And then, of course, people are going to come after the Nazis and he gets dragged out on the street. And uh, she makes it due to the fact that she stole the little black book uh, of one of these officers, which detailed uh, the scheme that we described earlier that Franken was involved with of uh, helping Jews, quote unquote, escape before shooting them on the river uh, or in the ocean or whatever um, on the water. And then she goes to Israel and lives there with her Israeli husband and children. And it's real trad. Yeah, the film starts to fade out and it's like a new beginning and a happy, peaceful ending. And then we hear distant firing shots and bombs and aircrafts. Is it PTSD of World War II or is it the Israeli Palestinian conflict? Damn, like a ghost. (laughs) (laughs) Truly the scariest story in history. Yeah, yeah. And um, yeah, like how it just kind of ends on that. It's just like the hustle continues. Like, it's just, uh, (laughs) it's like there's there's no escape from our past. And, you know, the, the sins of our past will be the sins of our future. So it's a perfect ending. And it's like such a difficult film. I gave it four on Letterboxd, but you know what? Four and a half bullets. It appears to be more self-serious in tone than the classic Verhoeven, um, you know, Starship Troopers, Showgirls, Total Recall. uh, Great films. I love those films. I think I like this one just a tiny, tiny bit more. Um, I think also just in terms of him as a visual stylist, I think he's always just been like above water like he's he's never messing up he's always doing the right thing with the camera but he's never too impressive of a visual stylist i think this film has a really impressive control of space within the scope frame that i haven't quite seen from him before and also just the weight of it is so much heavier despite the you know irony and humor that you still find in it despite uh as i said what appears to be a self-serious tone so Four and a half bullets. Hard film to talk about, as you can tell by the difficulty I'm having right now. What about <laughs> you guys? I, you know, I'm going to go four and a half bullets as well. I think, yeah, the kind of the difficulties this movie presents are, I, I you know, they really felt, fuck, see, now I, I'm having trouble too. All right. Um, <laughs> let me, I, I had something in my head too. Now it's fucking gone. It's all this sweat dripping off me. You heard me stumble for so long that it made you realize, oh, I should probably just stumble along some words, too. That's true. I'm just doing the Billy Madison thing where I pee my pants for you. Um, If not knowing what to say on a podcast is cool, call me Miles Davis. (laughs) Yeah, I think I I like Black Book a lot because it does a lot of things, right? It, It does... Uh, reckon with a lot of, you know, war atrocities. It gets into the depraved aspects of it. You know, a lot of shit, a lot of piss, a lot of, you know, fucking. And, you know, that's what Ver- that's Verhoeven's bread and butter. Not necessarily shit and piss, but, like, the sex and violence that's presented in this movie. And, you know, it, but you still get his irony as well. And it kind of exposes the hypocrisy of a lot of World War II films and, like, their uh, air of respectability in a way that's almost less respectful to what actually happened. 
And of course, you know, there's there's many different ways to make a movie, but there's something about this that speaks to a greater truth than uh, most war movies. And also, I mean, this kind of this kind of takes a different approach approach where we're kind of getting in the cracks and the crevices of World War Two. I mean, we're kind of uh, where World War Two is almost over, and you know, we're with you know the Dutch resistance group, and you know, this Jewish woman who's had to you know have a lot of different identities within the war. It's uh, it's so it goes a lot of different places, you know, physically, thematically. It's uh, it's, it's some good stuff. What yeah, you, I'm. I'm also gonna give this four and a half uh, bullets. I'm bumping it up. Just like talking about it uh, has like really made me fall in love with it even more. I mean, Verhoeven is the greatest, but just I, I mean, I agree with um, what you were saying, Malcolm, about how this explores a lot of interesting crevices that World War Two, like the prestige World War Two movie, doesn't usually go into. And I think one interesting aspect we didn't talk about as much is that a lot of the post-war violence, like that's when Rachel gets mm-hmm. the like shit poured on her as well is by like people trying to punish the Nazis. And I like that at every turn in a worse movie, like things could work out for Rachel, but instead they just get more and more worse. And I think like overall, like, Black Book is a great film for trying to unlock Verhoeven as a director because he grew up um, while or he was born like while World War Two was like going on. And the I, I think I read somewhere him just describing a lot of the brutality and like bombings that would happen in his neighborhood and that violence that he had to encounter and face as a kid clearly informed his perspective throughout all of his filmography. And I know his like earlier works in the Netherlands confront the post-war uh, era as well, but it's nice to see um, a more contemporary Verhoeven do that and do it masterfully. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the irony of that shit bucket scene just kind of hit me because, you know, she gets the shit bucket on her. She gets hosed down violently. And then who comes in to stop it, right? Is Hans. And Hans tells these yeah. people, it's like, you guys are worse than the Nazis. Meanwhile, this motherfucker is a Nazi. <laughs> and, like, and, 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 like, and, of, and of course, of course, during that scene, right, we see her go through so much turmoil. And like these people are so fucking awful to her and others. And so you kind of have to, you know, juggle with the morality of the scene. It's like, well, these people aren't just as bad as the Nazis, but still it shouldn't happen. But just for him to be the one to point out that, hip- that hypocrisy is... You know, it's a it's a pill to swallow. A lot of pills to swallow. I love the like comparison of morality and uh, comparison of the value of human life that goes on in this film. It's so transactional and cold and disgusting, honestly. <laughs> like uh, the way that you know the the resistance faction early on is like really weighing the value of a good Dutch life or a good Jewish life. <laughs> and like, what the fuck does that mean? <laughs> you know? Uh, but also like the, you know, when she's getting the shit bucket dropped on her, there's those local Dutch people that just come to the fucking prison to watch the prisoners get tortured and get fucked up and cheer them on. Like that detail and that group of eight people who are just going buck wild, watching them get tortured is just the perfect touch for this film yeah yeah i mean hey there's no no television back then right so you know 
What else are you going to do? Also, I looked up uh, some background on this film, and there was something very interesting. There was behind-the-scenes videos being posted during production of this film uh, online and available to like download for mobile devices in 2006. Wow. So... If anyone has any like 144p behind the scenes videos that they downloaded on their site Sidekick in 2006, please let us know. Yeah, you know what that makes me think of? Did you guys see like that Instagram account that like some charity org- organization made where it's like what if someone in the Holocaust had an Instagram? Oh my oh god. My god. <laughs> that sounds sick. It's one of it's one of the worst things like ever made. It's like <laughs> like it's it's a, it's like a girl too. It's like a 12-year-old girl and like she'll be like outside and then like she's like I think I hear like people coming or like vans like it, it's all like drawn out like that. That should have uh, been the, so the B feature like, that Instagram account. Is it just Anne Frank? <laughs> kind of. Definitely definitely the the initial lead in that Instagram account. It definitely has some Anne Frank uh, vibes to her. Uh, that that's a, that was a complete atrocity. That's I'm not I'm not one to be a moral scold, but we got to draw the line somewhere. <laughs> um, we'll be right back on extended clip to talk about a little black book. Ich bin die Oh yeah, me too. I don't know why. I'm just thinking of like I don't I don't think it's the right scenario, but I'm kind of thinking of the guy from Green Book like going to see Black Book. And he's like, what the fuck? This isn't how I remember it. Just like it's it's a theater that's both playing Green Book and Black Book and he goes into the wrong one. Oh, wait a second. You know what to say, all right, though. I like all the the titties. <laughs> and we're back on extended clip. Before we get into the little black book, JT, what did you watch this week? Uh, Wait, Malcolm usually goes first. Malcolm usually goes first, right? Yeah. We could break order if you want, though. It could be. Whatever works. I don't care. Whatever. You watched whatever works. <laughs> <laughs> no, but my review was, I don't care. It wasn't that good. <laughs> But you supported the art by purchasing it. I did for the female actresses in the movie. So. Well. <laughs> you going to oh. go GT or no? Oh, okay. I wasn't sure. I'll, I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll dive in. Um, yeah. One thing, <laughs> aside from whatever works, um, and the various other Woody Allen movies that I've been rewatching this week, um, I watched Necronomicon. Uh, which is an anthology horror film uh, by Brian Yuzna, Christoph Gans, and Shisuke Kaneko. Um, and it's all three stories that are based off of Lovecraft's uh, short stories. And there is a little, like, the connecting tissue story is uh, Jeffrey Combs is pe- uh, playing H.P. Lovecraft um, going into this, like, secret section of the library trying to find the Necronomicon and uh, he's just writing down the stories and that's the framing device because Lovecraft 
was just a hack writing down notes from the devil's book. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, it's, I don't know. I feel like normally I'm not that crazy about anthology films, save for um, body bags that we watched. Also fun horror time uh, because I feel like they are usually really uneven, but I think the flow of this worked really well where each uh, short, um, got better and more uh, disturbing and like the practical effects were so neat and just like gross and gory and violent and it really engaging with a lot of the whole Satan hell imagery in a really fun uh, playful way and it was just nice to see uh, Jeffrey Combs even though you can't, you can't quite like they, they do him up real nice um, so you can't quite see his the, the, his pure charming face but you know he's there under the makeup guiding you along um but yeah it was a great time uh what about you malcolm um you know i didn't watch any movies but you know what i did do i, I got in my car and i went cruising you know <laughs> uh, for what kind of cruising uh just kidding you know i'm just playing around uh i watched the movie cruising though starring uh Al Pacino, legendary gay actor Al Pacino. Um, not only does he does races, but sexualities too. Um, and in Cruising, he plays a straight man, a, a dead-eyed straight man who's uh, assigned to um, the gay club scene to find, uh, you know, an alleged gay serial killer who's killing people through these S and M clubs. And this is quite a movie. Um, it's definitely benefited with you know through time because at the time I think there were some people uh, LGBT protesters who uh, didn't like the representation you know in this movie and I think as time has passed it's not exactly unproblematic but it, it's 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 a uh, it has an interesting place ambiguous place where you know it's like well here's a movie that has a lot of gay club scenes right a lot of like um, gay S and M scenes and like some of it is presented as um, you know, kind of disturbing from like a straight man's eye. But I think what's great about the movie is as it progresses, um, you know, Pacino's sexual identity becomes more ambiguous. And it's not even that like you think he's uh, like, oh, he's like becoming gay or whatever. It's just, it, it, he's just kind of re-questioning everything, you know, everything he, you know, ever thought. And like Friedkin, who directed this movie, very masterful full filmmaker. And I mean, I, I, I don't think I've ever seen him as quite in control of a movie as this one, there's kind of this detached feel to it where it's like, this is a great horror movie, right? There's a lot of great um, following around scenes, you know, to the point where at the end, you know, we see Pacino creeping in the bushes himself. And um, I mean, I know there's a lot of stuff that I'm probably not um, as smart to talk about in terms of like, uh, you know, gay representation or whatever. But like, I will say the one woke point this movie has is that it presents, um, you know, the police as just, as detrimental as the serial killer in this movie. And we even have Joe Spinell play um, uh, a cop character who might be, you know, violently in the closet and like, you know, uses his fascistic cop tendencies to stay in the closet and abuse, you know, gay people, solicit sex from them. And uh, it's, you know, it's some pretty dark stuff, but uh, I mean, it's, it's really good. And like, I don't know, something about Pacino, the look on Pacino's face throughout this movie, this kind of cold, dead stare, it's, uh, it's mesmerizing. Big fan. What about you, Eddie? You were, you were, you were revisiting some classics, not to, not to step on your, your words there, but you were Ben, you were Ben Mankiewicz with it this week. 
Look, since the inception of this podcast, the Three Boys extended clip has always remembered the classics. Uh, last week, our double feature, Sully and the Birds, two of my favorite movies, figured, why not keep the streak going? Uh, other than one feature and one 30-minute special, I only re-watched classic movies this week. Uh, you know, checked out Sparrow, Miami Vice, In the Mouth of Madness, Unforgiven, Lost Highway, Tulane Blacktop, Black Hat. I mean, is, is the cinema any better than Black Hat? Wait a second. A challenger approaches. I think it's Wagon Master. Uh, I rewatched Wagon Master, the John Ford masterpiece. And I mean, I already knew it was like one of the best movies, but this time it just really hit me because I knew what I was in for the whole time. And I think maybe I was questioning the seeming uh, plotlessness of it last time around and introduction of all these characters and kind of hard to track down where the real center of the film is and then I read criticism that made more sense out of it and this time I realized the center of this film is just the momentum that carries these wagons uh and it's a beautiful road movie about a group of Mormons going to a new valley uh and a couple of wagon masters that are leading them all along the way and it's just one of the most moving films of all time. Um, there's just like five cowboy songs that are sung over and over throughout it. Uh, or there's like three that are sung over and over and two other original ones, such as the Chuckawalla Swing, which is, you know, if you know anything about the films of John Ford, you know that when characters are dancing in a John Ford movie, they're dancing their asses off and there's a badass song playing under it. And it's an amazing scene every time. And this is no exception. Um, so watch Wagon Master. It's, it's the ultimate, why am I crying in the club right now movie? You know, it's like horses pull. It's something that we talked about in seven men from now where a, a horse is pulling a wagon across a body of water. Uh, that's something that happens twice in this film. And then the end credit, not even the end credits, the end of this film is just like this crazy, like highlight reel essentially that feels somewhere between a, like a TV recap and like an avant-garde montage of all of these amazing lyrical moments that have happened in the film. And of course the end fades in over a horse, you know, struggling to pull a wagon through water. And it's just like one of the most plainly beautiful uh, moving images that you can possibly see. So yeah, as I said, Stan Wagon Master. <laughs> And don't forget to remember the classics. Don't and forget. Never forget the classics. That's the only thing that you should never forget. <laughs> in my opinion. Question. How does a girl who falls, no, actually she jumps, eyes open, down a rabbit hole, plummeting into chaos, come out the other end unchanged? The answer? She doesn't. See, I know because that girl... It's me. It's fucking episode 132 of Mad Shane's Secret Podcast, dude. It's a. Uh, and a couple of Wes Watson white nationalist <laughs> videos to, for good measure. <laughs> That's just desserts. Extended clip, just desserts edition. <laughs> Welcome back to Extended Clip, just desserts edition. Only the sweet stuff this episode. <laughs> You're right. You're right. Little Black Book. Um, JT, I have to hand it to you. 
This looked like it was just going to be a middle-of-the-road rom-com with a few eccentricities. And then the last 30 minutes of this film, not even the whole last 30 minutes, but a big chunk of the third act really did blow me away. So thank you for, in terms of just like a gimmicky title-based double feature, <laughs> thank you for picking out uh, something that I had so much fun with. Yeah, no, this turned out a lot better than I was anticipating. I was just anticipating this being trash. Like, Little Black Book, it was just lodged in my memory. Like, something I had no idea what it was about. Like, I just have flashes from my childhood, just, like, hearing it somewhere, maybe seeing a loose trailer. Just, I knew there was a movie named Little Black Book, but I knew nothing more. Yeah. Um, and I'm glad it was a fun time. You heard the uh, the radio advertisement, the guy on the radio advertisement say the title of it in between classic rock songs, <laughs> or at least I did. Yeah. Honestly, as fun as this movie is, it's fucking exhausting. Like this is like it. This is it is like, a, and I mean that as a compliment, and maybe a little bit of a detriment too. But it's just like the the like last hour of this movie is like it's not even baffling in that it's like like oh how could this happen? Although I guess like how could that happen? But um, it's just like you go through a lot. You're going through a lot. It's not you know it's not exactly lighthearted romantic comedy fare. I would say this is a. This movie has its complications. No, I think it plays itself as a kind of meta rom-com that has to do with uh, reality TV in so much as any rom-com always has to do with its protagonist's profession. And then at about an hour and 10 minutes in, Holly Hunter transitions uh, from being the best friend character to a complete psychopath and the god of television. And it's one of the great character transformations because obviously it changes the arc of the film and it brings reality into a completely different dimension, kind of, and how manipulative these characters have been while they seem to just be stupid rom-com characters. Uh, maybe giving it a bit too much credit, but I think that something quite interesting is accomplished in the big turning point of this film also super weird like super popular movie on letterboxd 5.6 thousand people have logged it which is like pretty decent for like a mid-2000s movie that people don't care about um but nobody i follow has lot one person felipe Furtado, has logged it but like marked it as watched no one else i follow has even logged it at all yeah, yeah. I mean, this is this is kind of maybe JT unearthed a little bit of a hidden treasure, you know, a little bit of a, you know, something at the surface that we didn't even realize. Because, um, yeah, this is not exactly it's not ringing any cinephiles bells, but you know, it's interesting to watch movies like this, and it's honestly exactly what I needed because I feel like I've been watching too many like good movies by like directors with visions and shit like that, and it's like this it operates in a little bit of a different mode, and uh, I was happy to watch it. Speaking of directors with visions, though, this director does have another film called Virtual Sexuality from 1999 that I'm currently downloading a torrent of, but it's stuck at like 60%. So if anyone out there uh, wants to seed that bad boy for me. (laughs) So this film is about uh, Stacy, played by Brittany Murphy. Um, She wants to be... uh, She doesn't want to be... What's her name? Diane Diane Sawyer. Sawyer. Yeah. She wants to work with Diane Sawyer. Exactly. 
Uh, and so she wants to be a co-worker of a TV personality, news person, I guess. So she gets a job at a reality show that uh, Kathy Bates is the host of that's kind of like a Maury-esque, you know, sensationalist, uh, Maury slash Jerry Springer-esque sensationalist daytime, uh, you know, reality drama show uh, with lots of, uh, you know now would definitely be read as transphobic there's like four of them where it's like the headline is you know grandma used to be a grandpa or something like that uh but just you know as shocking stuff as you can possibly produce and uh there's some funny gags in that regard and some stuff's just dumb obviously give me drama pathos life unfolding make me cry ira regurgitate something fresh midget holiday hell Stinks. Come on, give it to daddy. My boyfriend's a girl. Parents who party. Who they party with, Larry? Rejecting the midgets. Midgets. What? Mixed parents, happy mixed parents, one normal size. One midget? Sexy, I like it. Those midgets are mine! You can't corner the midget market. She then uh, starts to dig a little bit about the past of her boyfriend, who seems great, but a little mysterious. And she's encouraged to dig a little deeper by Holly Hunter, her co-worker. Uh, and so she uses the powers of her job as like a, a journalist uh, to interview and interrogate and manipulate the ex-girlfriends of her current boyfriend while he's out scouting hockey players. Yeah, Holly, Holly Hunter just had been through a breakup, right? So she's kind of in, encouraging the snooping behavior as well as the beta cuck guy at work. Um <laughs> Kevin Sussman. She's, you know, you gotta, they're saying like, you gotta check under the hood before you buy the car. And, um, you know, she, let's, you know, let's get into a little guy talk right here. You know, was, okay. she, was she going too far? Was she going too far? Was that a, a breach of uh, trust? What do you guys think about that? <laughs> well, I, I'm reminded of uh, a recurring theme on the love series on VH1, where toward the end of the season, uh, the exes of the contestants will come on <laughs> and, you know, Flav, Flav of Flav or uh, Brett Michaels or New York will get to interview uh, the exes. And I, I always found that very, uh, like, fantasy fulfilling in a way like mm -hmm. uh, a very demented fantasy you know the, the mental gymnastics that you play when you're breaking down where the pieces on the chessboard of your life are <laughs> <laughs> uh but it's also absolutely demented and like all of the behavior in this film is absolutely demented and uh that's why it's good like if rom-coms had like real people in them they probably wouldn't be very funny or exciting right i was gonna say the britney murphy character also a russian piece britney murphy but uh stacy she's not exactly like she's kind of ditzy um at the start like you know definitely holly hunter's definitely kind of like the cool person in the movie and uh you know she wants to like very she's very earnest very like she's a very strange character you know maybe 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 i'm getting strokes of black book here right where it's uh you know there's so many complexities to you know the relationship shown on screen where it's like i don't even know where exactly where i stand on this stuff anymore i mean of course the snooping is bad it's entertaining it's good it's good movie right it's good movie shit but it's like it's just so this movie really did leave me just as baffled in Black Book as Black Book in kind of a different way. But um, I'm I'm confused, guys. I'm kind of lost here. Yeah, no, I'm still working my way through this movie. I think it takes, like, an interesting, like, 
sort of realistic premise of like, oh man, like what's the line of like knowledge you should have about your significant other's past and like what's off the table and like what it starts with that and goes into an absolutely cartoony and crazy realm with it. That's like obviously not realistic, but that's what makes it so fun to indulge in a lot of these really wild scenes. It feels like to me, like a dumber riff on broadcast news, especially because it's oh, like yeah. overlapping with like reality TV journalism. And then the Kathy Bates character reminded me so much, so much of the Nicholson role in uh, broadcast news where it's like the, the big celebrity is sort of kept away from most of the main uh, momentum of the film. But just because it's a dumber and like wilder riff on that doesn't make this bad. I mean, not as good of a movie, but still an enjoyable time. No, I like to I like to think like this is what the Holly Hunter character in Broadcast News is doing in her later career. You know, <laughs> you could. This is almost kind of like Broadcast News too. You know, some would say. I haven't seen Broadcast News. We've talked about how shameful that is on this podcast. For before, shame, dude. But, tisk yeah. tisk. Um. I think the only James L. Brooks film that I've seen is Spanglish still, Damn. which I think is like a near masterpiece too. Um, but I think a lot of rom-coms like this, particularly before this makes its turn and presents itself as this type of rom-com kind of lives and dies on the eccentricities of its characters and the world that it builds for them. Mm-hmm. And I think this film is pretty good at making that stand out. You know, like the opening of this film puts a lot of detail into uh, the process of TV production and it doesn't go away fully. I was expecting that even though it's a workplace movie, like all of the people in the control room in the war room, as it is uh, all of their jobs seem very well illustrated, you know, and it's a very detailed film in that regard. And there's uh, the, the pitch about the titular black books is made, as you said, by the, the small cuck reporter man who uh, wants to interrogate people's palm pilots. And of course, this is the transitional era between the flip phone and the smartphone where people had the smartphones that couldn't make calls like a palm pilot, which is just now seems fucking stupid. But back then was uh, if you were like a, a middle or upper class business person, you always had one of those. Mm hmm. And yeah, it kind of, you know, this kind of environment, right? They're kind of doing kind of cheap news, right? Kind of like, um, you know, my grandma's a hooker, like my boyfriend cheated on me type stories. It kind of like, this is like just a workroom full of uh, blue check journalists, basically. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) These are the type of blue, this is like the lifestyle of a blue check journalist. So if you ever want a little bit of insight to how they live, this is what they're up to. Uh, I also like the... Uh, specificity of New Jersey here. I think there's <laughs> there's like a couple lines where the accents come out more thick than others. I think it's not fully committed as it should be, uh, but there's definitely some good uh, local flavor, as it were, beyond just uh, the New Jersey Devils iconography, uh, which of course always never fails to bring to mind David Putty and Seinfeld uh, <laughs> <laughs> saying we're the devils to <laughs> the <laughs> pastor or whatever. <laughs> Oh, yeah, there's one point where Holly Hunter and Brittany Murphy are just staring at a poster for a working girl. <laughs> oh, that's great. Yeah, yeah. She's vintage, 1988, classic poster. She, yeah. The way she presented it, I, I really enjoyed. Real collector's uh, way about her. And yeah, I felt like Brittany Murphy's performance was like, I wasn't 
too into the details of it until she started doing her snooping kind of and I realized how kind of subtle it was she's really good at that you know kind of dead uh smile that she gives all the people that she's pretending to interview uh especially like when she's really connecting with the uh the chef uh who like of all the exes that's the one that she becomes friends with uh she's really good at putting up that you know fake front as an actor i like i mean the interaction with the rashida jones character that scene i think is really funny i mean not probably Mm -hmm. not as much in the way that it was intended but it's just like oh it's the the classic mix-up of i i you said podiatrist it's a gynecologist um but like it's so funny to me because it's like okay i get like it's weird to have your boyfriend's ex-girlfriend like up in your puss but like the way she reacts to it is like she has never been to a gynecologist before (laughs) which was very funny i'm going to insert the speculum now oh good narration you may feel a bit of pressure Oh, would you take a look at that cervix, Nurse Kislevsky? <clears throat> Textbook. Then after she's been, you know, investigating and it seems like uh, stuff's starting to fall apart, uh, kind of that classic second act break in a rom-com, she's about to even leave work, you know, she, her boyfriend came back home from his his trip and saw that she destroyed the, the voicemail machine and... Uh, you know, she's going to go home from work, but she decides to stay because Holly Hunter is so psyched up for her live show. And then she says the line, it's all for you. And then (laughs) Brittany Murphy's character goes out on stage and uh, it turns out that everyone has been paying attention and been on to her uh, of everything she's been doing and building this live show around her investigation. No, actually it's called Little Black Book. Let's fill our audience in on some recent history. Stacy's a new member of our staff who's been using the resources here to do her own personal research on her boyfriend, Jerry, and three of his ex-girlfriends. Uh, you know, the same story that the viewers of this very film have been watching. And then you get these like multiple long shots that zoom in slowly on Holly Hunter, uh, like in the control room, just looking like God pulling the strings. <laughs> it's really funny. And I don't know. I think at that moment, I realized how funny Holly Hunter's performance in this is and like uh, really gained a lot of respect for the film and what it was doing building up to that point. Yeah, this was kind of like, the, this is the movie's ace up its sleeve, right? And I think it's like, to his credit, it's a really good ace. Like it's, it's um, you know, you're, you're flipping the perspective, you know, you're, you're getting some rom-com viewers to like, you know, maybe who, maybe some people were, you know, not exactly investigating the complexities of what Brittany Murphy, w- w- you know, was doing. And then it's completely flipped on their head. It's like, you know, this girl's a monster. Well, you know, what are, what is she doing? You know, and um, all sensationalized in that reality television format and yeah i mean it's um i you know it like with holly hunter pulling the strings it's like the way she's even willing to sacrifice herself for like this beautiful piece of art you know that she's creating through this uh a television episode you know it's that it's that girl, girl boss mentality well it does have the girl boss ending 
Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, it. I mean, I guess you could say fortunately if you're into that, but it does have the ending of choosing professionalism over romance, uh, professionalism and like life goals over romance, uh, and I guess that's like a trend for mid 2000s girl power movies i guess yeah Uh, i don't want to be too hasty in my generalization but i feel like i could pull together a small canon of those films to to give to give this movie the benefit of the doubt even though that what you're saying is kind of what it's doing you know i think maybe it's just like you know she just needed to step away from the hype for a second you know what i mean like she just uh yeah she didn't necessarily choose like work over romance it's just you know this is what's next for her but you know, I'm 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 operating in that rom com logic. The girl boss ending is so much better than any contemporary attempt of doing it, and far less irritating because it's so much more like as opposed to like it's rooted in her character. Like it would be very annoying if like instead of Carly Simon showing up, it was like R B G or Diane Sawyer or whatever <laughs> the fuck. But it's like it's yeah yeah it's just like that. I don't know that little cameo I thought was funny. Like the, it's like the satisfying wrap up of like her working with Sawyer and like in a way where it's like, oh, like this is, it's like a geek ass quirk. Like, I don't think it's like, it's not, um, really praising her for like that mindset. It's just the better path for this particular character. It's not prescriptive. Like, oh man, all women need to do this. Yeah, no, and I feel like if you even strip that dichotomy of uh, professionalism versus romance out of that uh, final sequence after she ends her New Jersey uh, time period, uh, <laughs> she then, uh, like, it's just like a silly, fun rom-com ending of her making a new start in the big city, and there's a really goofy scene of her in the cab, like, there's a homeless man that she passes that has a sign that says traffic on third and she like shoots finger guns at him to like say thanks to like <laughs> avoid the traffic just the most like what the fuck were they thinking <laughs> yeah it's funny that stuck out it's to just me. like dumb at it's just total dumbass rom-com logic but i like that's what the first 55 minutes of the film were before that twist. So why not go back to it? It went from, you know, it went from uh, illogical rom-com to sensationalist reality TV with a meta twist. And then, yeah, of course it's going to go back to rom-com for the new beginning. So I think the end of this film, uh, despite a criticism that's like very easy to read into it, works pretty well and also you're still riding high from the 20 minutes preceding that uh so i think i think this was a quite a good film you know i i'm gonna give it uh three bullets there's a lot wrong with it it's not exactly a visually stylish film um it's definitely in the why is this in cinemascope canon uh but i think it accomplishes Maybe not even what it's trying to do, but it makes a case for itself as an outsider classic. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, um, yeah, you, you see what this movie's trying to do, and it's a, uh, it's, 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 it's unique in the realm it operates in. So you got to give that credit. I, you know, I was kind of saying how it was a little bit exhausting earlier, and like I do, like there's, I don't know, there were some points in this movie where I just, I, I wasn't as willing to go along with it as I wanted to. Um, yeah, exactly. But I mean, I, I, like you said, like the ending's good. The, I mean, or the climax rather, but I do like the Carly Simon ending too. And I, I like the touch of Carly Simon actually throughout the, the movie. It kind of, uh, 
like you said, JT, it kind of like it's a uh, Diane Sawyer kind of represents her professionalism, and then like Simon um, represents you know her kind of like more emotional, personal life. You know, it relates her back to you know her mother, and you know to see Carly Simon to show up in that you know in that professional area kind of just intertwines the two in a satisfying way. Um, I mean, one thing I want to point out, you know, it's Holly Hunter putting a, a vibrating, you know, flip phone on her pussy. Like, <laughs> oh my god, yes, I fucking love. I forgot that. about that. I love that. I'm not. I did. I did not forget about that. You know, I uh, um, I love that a lot. I really like that. Um, I'm gonna give it two and a half bullets, and um, I love Holly Hunter. She's a great actress. Yeah, Holly Hunter is amazing. In this. Sorry, I w- I just wanted to say that I did say that this was a great you know mobile phone film for that transitional era Mm -hmm. uh yeah i I gotta include that in like in the 2000 cell phone canon uh one -hmm. of the great scenes oh yeah for sure oh yeah i mean that whole answering machine debacle there's a lot of attention to like the the mid-2000 cell phone-ness of it all so that's got to be in there jt um yeah i'm giving this one three bullets as well um, I think it definitely falls into like the accidentally good canon, like much like something uh, like I would say Maw uh, operates on. I mean, like I because it's like I'm not sure if it's firing on all the cylinders that it could, but there's a lot of good to be mined from it. It's very sincere in like presenting itself for what it is. Um, it's a dumb, interesting time. Uh, all the performances are really neat, and uh, yeah, nice, uh, nice chill vibes movie. I was just hanging. I mean, obviously, like gets pretty stressful there with all the women be spying stuff. But uh, <laughs> um, yeah, it's it's good, good time. Yeah, keep the passcode on your phones, fella. <laughs> but for real though, women do be doing espionage. <laughs> yeah, they're they're women are literally the reason we're going to be in a surveillance state because they want to attract their boyfriends. So I'm going to give women the blame for that one. Hey, there was a woman spying in Black Book too. It's just like hey, it's a universal <laughs> truth, no matter where they are. Yeah. I'm gonna be paranoid every time I have sex. Now I'm like, is this is this just an opsec operation? <laughs> is someone out to get me? Someone trying to silence me? Um. Okay. So that wraps up our little black book LBB segment. Shout out to Nick Haran, and I really hope I get to see his film, uh, Virtual Sexuality. If you want to reach out to us, you can always email us at extendedclippodcast at gmail.com. We actually have a double feature of emails this week. Believe it or not, after the email was uh, bone dry for months on end. We got two this week. (laughs) So, Malcolm, uh, do you want to read one of the emails from this week? Yeah, yeah. We got a a nice email from uh, Felix Dembiski. No subject, I might add. But uh, he wanted to say, hi, Extended Clip. Hi, I'm from the UK. I'd like to hear your thoughts on this high-slash-low double feature, films popular with leftist letterboxed users, parentheses, the Eisenstein heads, and the Star Wars prequels, and Isaiah Medina's films. There's similarity in the reviews I see for these, written by reviewers on the left, in that they make them sound fascinating and exciting, and I get a lot of of out-of-the-film criticism alone, 
but I don't get anything from the films themselves. I'd appreciate if the Extended Clip gang could discuss their thoughts on these films. Kind regards, Felix. Thank you for the question, Felix. Yeah, Felix, this is an extremely online question for our letterboxed heads. Yeah. Um, so the the proposed double feature is of, uh, I guess the A movies would be the Isaiah Medina films, either 88, 88, or Inventing the Future, and the B film would be a Star Wars prequel. I, I mean... Yeah, I guess that is literally the only connection, uh, is that leftist letterboxed users seem to love both of those. Uh, I'm a huge prequel head. I thought 8888 was pretty great. Uh, not a fan of inventing of the future, however. Yeah, you know, we, we, might, we might need to invent the future, not to do any shots. <laughs> um, but I, I, I liked 8888 as well. And like... Um, yeah, I, I mean, I this is something that I, uh, you know, I kind of feel on the outskirts as well, you know? I mean, I don't exactly understand these movies. I'm kind of right there with you, to be honest. Um, I need to investigate the Star Wars prequels further because I really don't have an opinion on them yet. Um, but I remember I did see the Revenge of the Sith or what? It, the third yeah, one? What that's is it. it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, um, I remember I saw that when I was like seven, and I drank a big soda, and I had to pee every five minutes. So I don't remember. <laughs> <it at all. laughs> I haven't seen any of the Medina films, uh, so I don't really know um, how to feel on that one. I mean, I guess in terms of like like complicated leftist movies, it's always like a hard thing to do because it's like sometimes you feel like it's coming from a perspective of like whether or not the director is someone actually smarter than me. They're trying uh, to make themselves appear that way and approaching a dense text. It's hard. And just like, I don't know, it's feeling out if it feels genuine to me in that regard. But in terms of the prequels, I'm not a prequel head really. Um, I want to revisit them because I, the, uh, uh, the arguments are strong that I see online and it's just like a compelling way to look at it. Like the last time I watched them was probably like, I think maybe freshman year of college and I wasn't like crazy, um, about it. But now that I have, uh, my, like they live vulgar autourism glasses <laughs> on, I feel like I might be warmer to them, but maybe not. Who knows? Yeah. Maybe this, the way to do it is maybe you watch something like Gamer first, or maybe I don't like you know what I mean. Maybe there's baby steps to this shit. I don't know. Yeah, well, because I wouldn't even say that like Medina or Star Wars are like the end of the canon, as vulgar as it gets. Or no, anything. yeah, no, yeah, <laughs> not and really, obviously, no, not at all. yeah, no. Medina, you wouldn't even say is vulgar whatsoever. No, no, it's not for Medina. Yeah, that's like uh, or not not that his films are straightforward. But it's that it's a straightforward art house auteur, you know, mm -hmm. um, and that Lucas is a, you know, obvious uh, blockbuster auteur. Anyway, mm -hmm. maybe we'll talk about the prequels someday. I know Chapo did a series on them that must have been awful because I know. <laughs> yeah, it's like they're not going to do it justice. No offense to them. Uh, good podcast, bad movie podcast. And uh, I think that. If we had someone that was smarter than us about politics that also was sympathetic to George Lucas auteurism to come on and do a prequel series with us, that might be fantastic. Uh, because I think there is a lot to dig at there with this. Uh, like, it's the only world building I've ever cared about is the dense uh, and very 
particular and strange political ongoings of the Star Wars universe. Next question. Yes, we have an email. It is a subject line, favorite late style directors from James McLaren. And he's saying, hey, JT, Malcolm and Eddie, I appreciate that you mentioned me first. That's why I'm reading this one. Um, first, uh, that was that was my uh, remarks upon the email, not me. So. <laughs> I was like, what does that mean? I didn't, <laughs> uh, I didn't quite wait. <laughs> uh, but, you have to be clear about your editorialization. Yes, of here. course. But uh, firstly, thank you for all the episodes and movie recommendations I've been able to enjoy while being stuck inside. An editorial remark, you are welcome. On the show. You're welcome. Yeah. On the show, especially the latest on Sully, you've talked a lot about late style. That time in a director's final years where their form and their fascinations is distilled to such a degree that their work becomes unadulterated, inscrutable, and intense. So I'm curious, who are your favorite directors whose most interesting work came during their late style? Or are there any directors who you feel whose late style is underrated? Thanks, James. How do you boys feel about this one? You really teed a juicy meatball up for me on this one. This is, uh, <laughs> this is, uh, looking like I uh, feel like uh, the voiceover in Bull Durham when he's waiting for that pitch over the middle to get out of the park, you know? <laughs> yeah, you know, it's because I'm having trouble. I definitely know some, but like, I was like, what's my favorite? Like, I'm, I'm not, you might need to take the lead on this one. Well, I think the distinction between favorite and interesting is important to be drawn here True. because there are directors like Woody Allen who are definitely their late period films are generally awful, but some of them are more interesting than others. Uh, and then there's the masters. Obviously, you have Robert Bresson. Um, the case can be made that his mid period, you know, black and white, more prestigious uh, criterionized films uh, or earlier criterionized films uh, are the better ones. But obviously if you have uh, two nickels to rub together in brain dollars, uh, <laughs> you know that four nights of a dreamer, the devil probably and Largent are among the greatest films of all time, as well as Lancelot Dulac, of course. Uh, so yeah. Also Jerry Lewis. I mean, come on. Uh, mm -hmm. Smorgasbord and hardly working are like two of the great examples of this. Um, obviously Michael Mann, I just revisited Black Hat and I think he's really pushing, uh, his, you know, obsessions with professionalism and how that contradicts with his anti-authoritarian and really even anti-cop attitudes, uh, in all these films that are so obsessive about these cops who are so good at their jobs. Mm -hmm. Uh, it's like the, the dichotomy that drives this man crazy. And I think black hat pushes it so far because the lines are just so dissolved. You know, I I've mentioned the John Woo uh, cop criminal line many times before. And obviously he's not like the one who invented this structure <laughs> to crime films, but I always think of him and uh black hat. I feel like was uh woo esque in its complete uh, dissolve of that. And the fact that for, an hour of the film takes place in Hong Kong. Yeah. I mean, all right. Some people, I think one thing I like about late style, is that like, it's sometimes like their interests can be channeled in like different ways, you know, or something like someone like Fassbender. I think some of his best movies come in his late period, although he like only made movies for a very short amount of time. But even in that short amount of time, he made so many that there is a definite arc that you see in like kind of like the bitterness and like, uh, 
anarchic tone of those movies are, I think, uh, you know, really speak to me. Um, I think Francis Ford Coppola is a very interesting late style artist. Movies like Youth Without Youth um, and even Twixt. Uh, Twixt is a little bit more straightforward, but still um, stylistically adventurous. Um, Youth Without Youth is baffling. Like, I, I, that's one of the few movies I really don't know what to make of. Like, it really kind of went over my head, but definitely in a way that intrigues me, not in a way where I, I check out and I become um, less interested. I mean, someone like Philip Garrell, I think, has a very nice late style. He makes, like, movies that are, like, 70 to 85 minutes, all about relationships. You know, they're very sensual. You know, they put up complex questions. Um, James L. Brooks' uh, last feature, How Do You Know?, I feel like is kind of uh, a lot of uh, a lot of aspects of his style kind of pushed, not to their limits, but to the most James L. Brooks that they've ever been before. Um yeah. That's just off top. Yeah. I'm going to go a little bit more obvious, I feel like. And I'd say the first one that came to mind for me is Orson Welles. Like, especially oh, with Other Side of the Wind, F for Fake, uh, Immortal Story. Immortal Story is just legendary late style. The scene of the, the sex scene intercut with him just like bloodshot eyes staring into the camera dead face is my favorite moment in his filmography yeah i think it's it, with wells it's interesting because it's like he is a director that is like i'm on a very basic level sort of by some cinephiles limited to like oh citizen kane and then sort of shoved to the to the books but it's i know i also admire and love a man for getting hornier as he gets older you really, I think that's a key part of late style is it, for male directors uh, is accepting that you're probably going to become a horny old man if you weren't horny already. Um, and <laughs> another name that I would think of, again, like fairly obvious, David Lynch. I think throughout the, the arc of his films, you see him becoming more unhinged and less narrative in ways that are really interesting. I mean, obviously, The Return is, like, a, a masterpiece, and I feel like the culmination of, like, his project with Twin Peaks, but just sort of, like, his filmography in general and, like, themes he's struggling with, with um, the underbelly and darkness to American society. And along with that, like, Inland Empire, like, really hits it home that he, it's sort of, those, uh, Inland Empire and The Return just feel like what he has been building up to. Oh, yeah. And mm -hmm. also, I want to mention a few more. Um, Brian De Palma, I think, really mm -hmm. hits it with like Femme Fatale and, of course, Domino. Uh, but Femme Fatale is just like an absolute, like his deepest dive into the sexual pathology of the films of Alfred Hitchcock. <laughs> like it's such a specific uh, obsession of his uh, that he goes so hard on in that film. And I think he's just one of the best examples of that going right now. Of course, I think the Irishman, the slow pace of that one could lend itself to that. But I think Marty is still uh, more in control than like full late style would indicate. Mm -hmm. Clint Eastwood, of course, of we've course. been talking about him. His late style films have become very much shorter than his usual films, but still have that kind of... 
uh, slow pace and are focused on uh, a more narrow range of subjects as he goes along and, uh, you know, becoming more of a humanist as he goes, especially with films like 1517 to Paris. Uh, but what I'm looking forward to is the films that Alexander Payne is going to make in Ooh. like 20 years when he's like 80 years old. Uh, that might be longer than 20 years from now, but when Alexander Payne is like an old fucking geezer, I think he's going to be making some fu- like his best films by far. I mean, yeah, if downsizing is any indicator. Um, he's, exactly. He's That's ba- what I'm saying. He's about to go down some good paths. Uh, rules don't apply by Warren Beatty. That's a that's a great late style object. Warren Beatty didn't get to direct, well, not really didn't get. I guess didn't choose to direct too many films throughout his career. And uh, rules don't apply. He's playing uh, Howard Hughes. Um, it's it's some very interesting stuff. I I think it's a good movie. There's a lot of people who didn't think so. I'd have to recheck it to confirm, but um, that that thing has late style written all over. It's horny. It's you know, recollecting on his time in Hollywood. It's very, uh, it's a very interesting product right there. Oh, and of course, uh, Jean-Luc Godard. Oh, I mean, yeah. come on. Uh, like, forget even the 2010s work. Just go to the 2000s. Like, the, he has a few short films that can encapsulate his entire career and push the ideological and aesthetic limits of that career uh, even further. Uh, short films like from the 90s, Je vous salue, Sergevo, and from the 2000s, Origins of the 21st Century, and of course, In the Darkness of Time, which you can listen to our episode about on episode two, paired with the film Clockstoppers. Uh, there's, oh, that, I mean, this conversation is reminding me of the article from last year that Richard Brody put out about uh, Jim Jarmusch's The Dead Don't Die, which like a lot of people hated, mm-hmm. but I think he was pointing out like the emergence of a Jarmish late style, which I feel like is something like, again, where I don't feel like he's hit completely. But I mean, I think Dead Don't Die is a, feels like a good precursor. And like same thing with maybe I might lump in Patterson in a different way, but like movies that yeah. are just like chill vibes, like he's getting there. I can't, by the time old Jim is pretty, pretty up there. I can't like the, it will be chill off the charts. It's like, it'll be like smoking a bowl. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The flatness of his like uh pop culture references, the way they hit in dead don't die was like, Oh yeah, he's on the way out. <laughs> but I, I loved it for that. That was, I, I, you know, listen to our best of the year episode where we talked about dead don't die. Okay. We've gone way too long. Um, we're on Twitter at ExtendedClip69. I'm at iPod underscore video. I'm at Bitchface Palace. I'm at Tallboy Thin Legs. Uh, what's our double feature for next week, Malcolm? All right. So one thing about me, and I think a lot of other people too, is that I love to laugh. I love to have a good time. I love to laugh. And who does this but comedians, right? And I know, you know, I think like maybe the the, the tragically online people, you know, um, even the less tragically so, uh, you know, there's a little bit of beef between the online community and comedians. And uh, I'm here to bridge that gap. You know, we're, we're going to we're going to solve this through a double feature and it's going to be comedians kind of reflexively looking back on their careers and making a movie out of that. Not even looking back on their careers or looking at their careers. And so we're going to do Monsieur Verdoux by old old charlie chaplin and oh hell yeah freddie got fingered 
but directed oh. by Tom Green. Malcolm, you are making me so happy right now. I'm going to watch a bunch of other Chaplin before we get to Verdu because I haven't seen enough to watch a late film by him. But I'm so excited for that double feature. Yeah, I'm going to definitely revisit at least one or two Chaplins as well, I think. So look out for our mini Chaplin episode um, next week. And I don't know. (laughs) I guess... Bye. <laughs> I no, you hang up first. <laughs> no, you hang. Okay, I stopped recording. <laughs> All right. I'll- nice.